Branch. Good to see you all here today. My name is Heath. I'm one of the team members here at Spring Branch. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? And our dream is to preach the gospel of Jesus to the nations and see lives change. And so that's why we're here this morning, to worship the name of Jesus like we just did and to teach and preach his word and to receive it with humility. This is also David up here. He's part of the team this morning. Let's give it up for David. Don't, don't be too distracted by him up here, uh, although he is doing just a masterful job painting the shepherd and the lost sheep. Uh, this is one of the parables we'll be discussing this morning. How many of you have enjoyed the parable series? It's been really good. Jesus is the master storyteller, isn't he? We all love a good story. We love telling a good story. You get captivated by the story. The last few weeks have been fun. This week, we're talking about the parables of the lost, the parables of the lost. And we'll be talking about uh, three different parables found in Luke chapter 15. If you want to turn there with me, there will also be words up on the screen. How many of you have lost something? Maybe you've lost something of great value. Maybe you've lost your wallet, which I have a few times. That's a terrible feeling. I've lost my keys a number of times. I've lost my cell phone a few times. Uh, a few years ago, Lindsay and I were on our honeymoon, and we were having a great time, and we were sitting by the pool, and for some reason, as my finger got wet, my ring slipped right off and fell into a deep, dark crack. Oh, not off to a good start. Right, so I uh, found a hanger and did the old hanger trick, ex extended that puppy and got on my stomach and fished that thing out of there after an hour or so, but man, that was a little stressful. Retrieved the ring and there was much rejoicing. See, something is worth whatever someone is willing to do to find it. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to do to find it. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Something is worth whatever someone's willing to do to find it. You might put it this way. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, right? Something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. Maybe you've seen that show, Pawn Stars, right? Somebody brings in something, and the, the pawn guy says, all right, it's worth this much, or it's worth this much, right? A few years ago, I took my Nissan Altima, into CarMax, and I was hoping that, you know, it would have been worth a lot more than just like $400. <laughs> a lot of good memories in that car, but that's all they gave me. Apparently, that's all that it was worth. But something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, and something is worth whatever someone is willing to do to find it. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what are you worth? What are you worth? When you look in the mirror, do you feel valuable? Do you feel precious? Uh, it might get a little awkward if you look in the mirror and say, you are precious, you are valuable. And gosh darn it, people like you, right? Um, how valuable are you? Are you worth the search? Has there been a God who's been searching for you? Has there been a God who's been pursuing your heart? Are you worth the search, the answer is yes. <laughs> no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, no matter how far you've strayed from the shepherd, there is a God who pursues you no matter what. And he pursues you and he searches for you until he finds you. 
Anybody thankful for a God who doesn't give up on us? Yeah. So the question is, what are you worth? You're worth a lot because you're made in the image of God. And when God created you and when, when God created me, he said, not just good, he said, hmm. Everybody with me? Very good. Very good. Mm, that is very good. He was proud of what he made when he made you. You're made in the image of God. He knows every hair on your head, and he has, uh, he has gifted you in such a unique way. I want you to know by the end of today that you are worth the search. No matter how far you have strayed from the shepherd, you are worth the search. There's a story this morning found in Luke 15, like I mentioned. It's, uh, it's a, it, there's three different stories within this parable. Remember, a parable is a simple story that illustrates a spiritual lesson. Simple story illustrates a spiritual lesson. Jesus takes something very familiar to communicate, to communicate something that is unfamiliar. He takes something common to communicate something that is more uncommon. He takes something that is material and communicates something that is immaterial or spiritual, right? He takes something very natural that you can smell and touch and feel and see in order to communicate something that is supernatural. He was a gifted storyteller. So that's what he's doing here in Luke 15. Let's start reading together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Let's stop right there. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Remember last week, we talked about the four soils in our hearts. Sometimes we've got a calloused heart because it's full of pride. Sometimes we have a, a childish heart, easily distracted, easily tempted. Sometimes we have a crowded heart, a crowded heart because we're just busy and just our lives are cluttered by all kinds of stuff. Or we have a conditioned heart. That's what we want, right? A heart that is cultivated in such a way that when the word of God, his seed, falls on our soil, we don't just hear ping. It doesn't just bounce off because it's hard. It soaks into the soil, deep into the soil, and takes root and then sprouts up and bears fruit, right? That's what we want. We want a humble heart, a heart that is receptive to God's word because we're hearing his word it's not just going in one ear and out the other. We're listening to it, and we're taking it to our heart. And then we're seeing it sprout up and bear fruit. So the verse before this verse in Luke 14, if you read it, Jesus says, all those who have ears, let them hear. All those who can listen, let them listen, right? So that's the verse before this. And then we read, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. <laughs> so we see that tax collectors and sinners were the ones that were leaning in on the edge of their seat. They couldn't wait to hear what Jesus was going to say next. The tax collectors and sinners. If you're a tax collector in here, hope you're not offended, but tax collectors were very much hated back then. And they were uh, traitors, right? Because they were Jewish people working for the Roman government. And they, most of the time, they pocketed more than they should have. They charged you, you know, your taxes, but then they kind of asked for a little bit more, you know, so they could be even richer. And so they were hated. They were enemies. They were the scum of society. They were socially, spiritually inferior. They were ostracized. And so here are these tax collectors 
leaning in and just, oh my gosh, Jesus, what's he gonna say next? And then these sinners, who are the sinners? Not only were they tax collectors, but they were also probably prostitutes, lepers, uh, different people that were clearly and blatantly not following God and obeying his laws. But these are the people who had soft soil in their hearts. They had hearts that were cultivated and conditioned in such a way where they were just receptive to God's word in their lives. So they were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Gosh, who does he think he is? Is he justifying their actions? Does Does he actually know what they've been doing with their lives? You can kind of hear the pride in their voice, right? Very self-righteous, very haughty in spirit, very prideful. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They muttered amongst themselves. Of course, Jesus (laughs) knew exactly what they were saying. He was listening to them, and he heard them. You know, having dinner with somebody, maybe you've had dinner with somebody recently, maybe a friend or a neighbor, it's a very intimate, personal thing, isn't it? You're not just associating with somebody, You are welcoming them into your home. It's personal. It's intimate, right, when you share a meal with somebody. Even more so back then, Jesus was welcoming sinners and eating with them. This was intimate. This was personal. And the tax collectors and sinners were leaning into here, and they were listening with humility because they knew that they needed help. They knew they needed a physician They knew that something was not right in their lives. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were filled so much with pride. They had so many blind spots, they couldn't see that the inside of their cup was yucky. Jesus talked about the Pharisees, remember? He said, the outside of your cup looks pretty good, nice and clean, shiny. But the inside of your cup, if you look closely, in your heart, that's what really matters. In your heart, there's pride, there's self-righteousness, there's entitlement. If we're not careful, we can identify with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. In another part of the Gospels, Jesus responds this way when, when the Pharisees and religious people are dogging him, right, for hanging out with the sinners. Jesus responds this way in Mark 2, 17. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Makes sense. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Hmm, interesting. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus had three years on earth. How was he going to use his time wisely? How was he going to prioritize his time on earth? Was he just going to hang out with a bunch of healthy people? No, it was urgent. It was important. It was an emergency for him to hang out with people who were sick, who were lost, who were hurting. He prioritized his time in such a way that we need to pay attention to this. When we think about our lives, how are we spending our time? Are we prioritizing people who are lost, who are hurting? Or are we just hanging out with healthy people all the time? Church should not be this warm, fuzzy, holy huddle where we're comfortable with each other all the time and we just spend all the time in Bible study. Bible study is important. Small group's important. Get into a small group if you're not in one. But it's for the purpose of going out. It's for the purpose of developing a strong foundation so we can go out and pursue lost people, 
people that are unsaved, people that don't know the physician, Jesus can heal them. It's an emergency. Speaking of that, there's an emergency severity index. I'm not an expert in this, but if you go into the ER, there's an ESI. What's that mean? It's a scale of one to five, right? The nurses use this scale, the ESI, to determine the level of urgency of your need, okay? So if it's a one on the scale, we better get you in quick because you're having trouble breathing. It's an emergency, life or death situation. If it's a five, you can wait, okay? You can wait. We're prioritizing the sick here, okay? The level of emergency, the level of urgency, Make sense? There's a level of urgency out there every day, wherever we go, to pursue the lost, the hurting, ones that are confused and ones that are just on their own, lonely and depressed and full of anxiety, people that don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, or maybe people that have drifted away from his love. It's urgent, it's an emergency to go out and tell people that there is a cure for the disease. That's what Jesus, the great physician, is doing here. He is prioritizing the lost and the hurting and those who are in need of a Savior. Verse 3, he told them these parables. The first one, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. We've heard this story before. There's a shepherd, and he's responsible for his flock. He sleeps with them. The best shepherds were the ones who smelled like their sheep, right? Because they were just in the trenches with them covered in whatever the sheep were rolling around in, right? They laid down their lives for the sheep to the point where they, could, they would go out and they would look for that one sheep who had wandered away. They would risk their own lives. They would, they would risk discomfort and inconvenience and, and just huge amount of effort. They would lay down their life to find that one sheep who was on the cusp of death, the edge of the cliff. Sheep were not smart. A little blind, a little dumb, a little stupid. They were completely and utterly dependent on their shepherd. The shepherd knew right where the sheep could find water, could find grass, and they led them there every day. And this one sheep, for one reason or another, had strayed away, had wandered off, and the shepherd left behind 99 sheep. He left behind 99 to go find the one. Doesn't really make sense, does it? How, how important is this that one sheep? Well, I love how Jesus puts this. He says, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Like, this is common sense, right? I mean, come on, guys. Doesn't he just leave 99, go find the one? Just logical. And many of these Pharisees may have been shepherds when they were teenage boys. So they understood that, okay, yeah, it's like common knowledge, if you're a good shepherd, you go after that one sheep because that one sheep is very precious, very treasured. That was common knowledge. And so that shepherd would go, if he was a good shepherd, he would go, find that lost sheep, and then he would celebrate. He would rejoice when he found that lost sheep. And that's what happens. He treks up a high mountain, 
He trucks down a deep valley into dark places, all the nooks and crannies of the countryside. He finds this lost sheep. And typically, a shepherd would break one of the legs of the sheep to prevent the sheep from straying away again. But I think it's implied here that this is a different kind of shepherd. Jesus is telling a story here. He doesn't include that detail because the good shepherd is not into condemnation. He's into restoration. When you have strayed away, when you have found yourself on the edge of a cliff, God's not out to get you. He's not out to condemn you. He's not out to kick you while you're down and shame you. He's not out to make you feel worse than you already feel, right? He's out to, to, to get you back. He's out to, to just restore you back to the flock and to his love and his grace. We have a God who seeks us. We have a God who pursues us. Every other religion, we have to seek God and pursue God through our meritorious deeds and checking the boxes and living the good life. That's exhausting, isn't it? I don't know how anybody can, I don't know how anybody can sleep at night wondering if, you know, did I do enough good things today? A lot of people live that way. Some of us live that way. But when we go to bed at night, we can rest in the grace of Jesus, knowing that it doesn't matter what we do or don't do, he loves us and forgives us because he's the good shepherd. He doesn't condemn us or kick us while we're down. We have a God who, who came to us through Jesus. We have a God who is a seeking God, a pursuing God. And this was totally revolutionary. The Jewish people back then, it, it, it was common knowledge that God would forgive a sinner who was repentant. But it was totally upside down, totally opposite for a God to actually go look for a sinner, go pursue a sinner, go seek after a sinner. That was totally upside down. And so when the Pharisees are hearing this story, they're like, what? The shepherd went after the sheep and restored him, didn't break his legs, brought him back to the flock, rejoiced. They were smart people. They, they knew what was going on here, what Jesus was trying to say. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Can you imagine the party in heaven when you decided to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? When I was a camp counselor in Colorado during college, I didn't know that I was going to be a pastor someday, but God used that experience at the foot of Pikes Peak in Colorado when I was in college to propel me into ministry because there was a kid who was a lost sheep. And I had a chance to sit down at a, at a picnic table with him and walk him through the love of Jesus. And he repented of his sins, and he asked Jesus to be his personal Lord and Savior. He crossed that bridge from death to life. And since that day, God has given me a clear mission to preach the gospel and to see people go from lost to found, from, from, from deaf to hearing, from blind to seeing. He's given me that mission, and he's given you that mission. 
Found people find people. Found people find people. God has given you and I that mission to pursue the lost at all costs. And there's much rejoicing. There's a party in heaven. There's a party in heaven when we go from death to life when we receive him as our good shepherd. Rejoice with me. There'll be more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than of 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. There's a story about a woman who met with a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was talking to her about her kids and he couldn't believe that she loved every single one of her kids equally. He's like, come on, it's not possible to, to have that much love for all three of your kids, to love all of them equally. There's gotta be one kid that you love more than others, right? And secretly as parents, we have one kid that, you know, right? <laughs> But she thought about it for a few minutes. She said, you know, I love them all equally, but come to think of it, when one of them is lost, when one of them is sick, when one of them is bad, I pay attention to them more than the others. I love them in that moment more than the others. Make sense? So in our brokenness, in our lostness, we have a God who is attracted to us. When he sees the lost, he pursues them. He leaves the 99. He leaves the two other kids that he also loves to make sure that lost kid knows how much they are loved and treasured and valued and cherished. He tells a second parable. Or, in addition to the shepherd and the lost sheep, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. So she's got 10 silver coins to her name. That's her life savings. That's all she's got in her account. But she loses one. And one coin is the equivalent of a day's wages, okay? Doesn't she? There's those two words again. Doesn't it make sense? Like, wouldn't you? If you're in this woman's shoes, wouldn't you light a lamp, sweep the whole house, and search carefully until you find it? And by the way, Houses back then, especially low-income houses, didn't have any windows. Not a whole lot of light coming through those windows. Again, no electricity back then. The, the, the floors were dirt, covered in straw. So it wasn't like you were searching for a coin on, like, tile, right? Or even carpet <laughs> with plenty of light. I mean, you can imagine this woman just lighting up every single nook and cranny in her house looking high and low for this precious, treasured, lost coin. It was everything to her. And she was doing whatever it took to track down that coin. And she spent hours, if not days, and then she found the coin. And she rejoiced and called her friends and neighbors to come over and she said, the lost coin has now been found. Let's throw a party. Love the story. In fact, the Pharisees and religious people would tell this story. They would also tell this story, which Jesus knew full well that this was a familiar story to the Pharisees. But they would tell the story to remind people to pursue the law. Look for the lost coin 
Look for the lost coin like you're looking for the law. Look for the law like you're looking for the lost coin. You got to know the law. You got to obey the law. You got to live in the right way. That's how they would leverage the story. But Jesus is using the story to not just point people to the law. He's pointing them to his love. He's, he's demonstrating that he, he is a God who pursues sinners. He doesn't put a hedge of protection around himself because it's, oh, it's too inconvenient. It's, it's not safe. You know, costs too much money, too much effort. He steps into the mess. He steps into the trenches of sinners' lives like you and I. He doesn't bat an eye. And he will search high and low for us. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to do to find it. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And Jesus says, go look for that lost coin. Go look for my love like you're looking for that lost sheep, like you're looking for that lost coin. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. Third parable, third story. This is the one many of you have heard. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, I wish you were already dead so that I could get all your stuff. That's pretty much what he's saying. I mean, how disrespectful is that, right? He says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is what's happening here. He's pretty much saying, Dad, I can't wait until you're dead to inherit your estate to get all your stuff. Like, I'm young now. I got lots of energy, you know. Uh, If you could just, you know, hand over all all your money to me right now, but I can just go off and just have a little fun, you know what I'm saying? Just a little good time. And the father, which was totally atypical back then, he actually gave his youngest son his inheritance right there on the spot. He said, all right, here's one third. Here it is. Everything I own, here it is. Here's the money. You know, God gives us freedom, doesn't he? Had somebody asked me recently, is it predestination or is it free will? And I said, yes. God knows ahead of time what choice we will make, right? He sees the whole picture. He sees the whole story. Thankful he is sovereign and control everything. Nothing catches him by surprise. He sees the whole picture. But at the same time, we're not robots. He gives us free will. He gives us a choice every day to love him or not love him. In the same way, he gives us his estate. He gives us his stuff. And he says, all that I have is yours. He's not micromanaging us every day, looking over our shoulder, right? He's given us the freedom to use what he has given us for ourselves or for others. To benefit ourselves or to benefit others. And so this father gives his son everything. He's like, all right, here you go. Have fun. Not too much fun. This guy, he takes everything with him. He takes everything with him. Verse 13, not long after that, younger son got together all he had. It wasn't like he left behind like a couple things, right? I'll be back for those things. He took everything for the purpose of going to a distant country as far away from home and as farther as possible. There he goes. He got together all he had, went off to a distant country, 
squandered his wealth in a wild living. Some parties, some prostitutes, some drugs, you name it, he did it. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He woke up one day, and he's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. I mean, talk about rock bottom. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Wow, the pigs were more important than he was. Not good. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, I love this phrase, when he came to his senses, how many of you have been in a moment, a dark moment, where you've realized what you've done? you realized that left to your own devices, you chose to be selfish and prideful and to live your way instead of God's way. I mean, why does it take us as humans to get to rock bottom to, for us to come to our senses? We think we're in control and we have pride and we think we can do it and we're self-sufficient. And then one day we wake up and we come to our senses and realize, oh my gosh, how did I get to this place where I'm with the pigs and covered in mud and longing to fill my stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating? It takes getting us at the end of our rope as humans to realize that that we need a physician. We need God's strength and his help in our lives. It's a good thing God does his best work at the end of our rope. His office is at the end of our rope. That's where he does his best work. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give up on us. He pursues us. He's a seeking God, and we are worth the search When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, verse 20, he got up and went to his father. I love this. It doesn't say he got up and went home. It doesn't say he got up and went back to his people or to his village. It says he went to his father. That relationship was still there. The fellowship had kind of waned a little bit, right? Like some of us, right? Our fellowship kind of wanes a little bit with God. Maybe we're not reading the Bible. Maybe we're not praying or in community, and that fellowship kind of becomes weak. But the relationship, because of his love for us, the relationship stays the same. Anybody thankful that there's a period God loves us, forgives us, period. That relationship is final. No matter how far we stray from home and from the loving arms of our Father, it's a relationship. It is in blood. It is certain. It is forever. It is never breaking, never stopping, always and forever. That's the love of the Father towards us. He went to his Father because there was a relationship. All the Father's love towards him all his life was not in vain. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. While he was still a long way off, while you're still a long way off, God sees you. Even though you've taken control of your lives, even though pride 
is strong in your heart, even though your heart is hard, that you become stiff-necked, even though you've strayed away like a sheep from the flock, God still sees you. Even though you're a long way off, he still sees you. And he's not filled with hatred. He's not filled with resentment. Like, I shouldn't have made that. He sees you as still valuable, still precious, still cherished, still treasured. He sees you as his precious gift. He still sees you as worth the search. You are still valuable in his sight. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. When you see people who are lost and hurting, are you filled with compassion towards them? Is it just pity? Or is it compassion? Compassion drives you to action. It's not just sympathy, it is empathy. You're identifying with how they're feeling and you're helping them, getting into their mess and loving them. He was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. Back then, if a grown man was running in public, that was very undignified, just not cool. (laughs) Wasn't very socially accepted. But this father, he was filled with so much compassion that he was just, he just forgot about the social norm and just found himself running full head of steam towards his son. I mean, he was sitting on his porch, if you can imagine, on his on his knees every day, just praying, God, bring back my son. Bring back my son. Bring back my son. Maybe he shared the prayer request with his, with his brother or his parents or his neighbors. Hey, pray for my son. He's squandered all my wealth and wild living. He's been gone for a while. Pray that my lost son will be found. And this, this guy, he runs full head of steam because he sees his son popping up over the horizon. And he runs out to him threw his arms around him and kissed him. This word kissed isn't just a quick peck on the cheek. You read the scriptures, if you read the the Greek here, it's like over and over and over again, this repetitive kiss, lots of kisses, tender, emotional, wet kisses. (laughs) This guy was just, he was thrilled that his son was, was found. He was home. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. How many of us have felt that way because of something we have done? We're not worthy. I was sitting across the table from a friend this past week. We're having a bagel, and he looked at me with tears down his cheek, and he said, Heath, I don't feel worthy of the forgiveness of God. I don't feel worthy of his love. I've done way too many things. If I told you all the things that I've done, Heath, you'd probably agree, maybe, that I'm, I'm too far outside God's love. Guys, there's no list long enough. There really isn't. Because guess what? God gives you a clean slate, a fresh start, a new beginning every day because of his blood shed on the cross. He looks past your past. He looks past it. Don't dwell on it. Learn from it. Move forward. You've got a life to live. This father was just, he was beside himself. He was so excited. This son was not feeling worthy to be called a son anymore. But the father, everybody say, but the father. But the father. Just when you think the father was going to condemn him and maybe think less of him or kick him to the curb, the father was filled with compassion. He said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast. Let's throw a party and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate with much dancing and eating. Mm, can you imagine that scene? Many of you have heard this story called the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son. The word prodigal, what's that mean? The prodigal, prodigal means wastefully extravagant. It means recklessly generous with your living. Typically, it's negative, right? The son was prodigal because he wasted away his father's wealth. It was reckless, extravagant living. But we serve a prodigal God, don't we? We serve a God who's prodigal in his love towards us. He's extravagant, seemingly wasteful, seemingly reckless in his love for us. We don't deserve a robe and sandals and a ring and a party. But he showers his love and grace over us anyway because he's the prodigal God. And he is rich. He's extravagantly affluent in his love for us. It doesn't make sense that the shepherd would leave at 99 and go after the one. It doesn't make sense that this father would receive his youngest son with love and forgiveness, but he does. The older brother, hearing music and dancing, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even say, but when my brother, he couldn't even say that. When this kid of yours, when this childish human being of yours who has squandered away your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? After all these years, I've slaved for you? Which he uses this word slaved, and that's kind of hint, hint. The lights on the dashboard should be going off for this guy. But he's been slaving for the wrong reasons. <laughs> he's, been, he's been basing his self Worth on how successful he was or how, how much he was performing or all the right things that he was doing. He was self-righteousness. He was prideful. In fact, this story should be called the two lost sons. Both these guys were equally lost. First one, in obvious ways. Second one, oldest son, he was lost in his pride and self-righteousness. I refuse to go into that party. I refuse to celebrate that son of yours. I've done everything right from day one. But that's not what it means to follow Christ. What it means to follow Christ is to rest in who your father is, not in what he can give you, not in his stuff, just simply who he is and his love. That's your identity. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. We had to we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wow. Powerful story, isn't it? You know, there are a lot of people in this room right now. Chances are maybe you feel lost. Maybe you felt lost for a while. Maybe like a sheep, you've gone astray from your shepherd. Maybe you need to turn back. What's it take for you today to turn back? your shepherd. Receive wisdom, receive prayer, receive 
encouragement from others. Maybe God's been pursuing you and pursuing you and pursuing you, but your heart's been hard. Humble yourself today and allow your heart to be soft and receptive to to God's love for you. Allow him to stir up that soil within you so that you can be all that he created you to be. Maybe some of us have been found. And maybe, maybe you've forgotten that your mission is to go find others. See, lost people can be found. It doesn't just stop there. But when you're found, you go find people. Found people find people. What if we as a church, we were, we were a seeking church. We were a finding church. We were a church that pursue the lost, whatever the cost. What if it wasn't just coming together and consuming and benefiting from the church? What if we actually participated in the church, in what God is doing, for the purpose of going out and pursuing the lost in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhoods? What if we had a pursuing mindset? What if we saw others as valuable and precious and treasured in God's sight? How would that change how we organize our time, prioritize our time? We've got one life to live, and there are people all around us who are sick and lost and hurting. May we not hoard our time for ourselves and stay in our comfort zone, but may we go out and notice others and be filled with compassion and help them and love them and put them over our shoulder and carry them to the flock. Found people, find people. Are you lost? Are you making yourself findable? Who is lost in your life? Pursue them, whatever the cost. I'm gonna close with a story. In June and July 2018, a widely publicized cave rescue successfully extricated members of a junior soccer team trapped in Thailand. 12 members of the team, aged 11 to 16, and their 25-year-old assistant coach entered the cave on June 23rd after soccer practice. Shortly afterwards, heavy rains partially flooded the cave, trapping the group inside. Maybe many of you have heard this story. On July 2nd, after advancing through narrow passages, some only three feet, and muddy waters, two British divers found the group alive on an elevated rock about 2.5 miles from the cave mouth. And over the course of three days, between 8th and 10th of July, all the boys and their coach were rescued from the cave. Incredible rescue effort. It involved more than 10,000 people, including over 100 divers. One of the divers, a Navy SEAL, he perished. He died. If you read about it, he knew full well going into the cave, he would probably die because he didn't have enough air to support his trip back out of the cave. He was delivering air to all those within the cave. But he knew full well when he went into that cave, he wouldn't have enough for himself on the way out. And he laid down his life. It included over 100 divers, many rescue workers, representatives from about 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, required 10 police helicopters, 7 police ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, and pumping of more than a billion liters of water out of the caves. Those boys were worth the search. 
Something is worth whatever someone will do to find it. Someone is worth whatever someone is willing to do to pay for it. And God, through his love and compassion towards us, stopped at nothing to find us. Though because of our sin, we found ourselves deep in a dark cave, helpless, desperate, no water or no food, God stopped at nothing to find us. We were gasping for air because of our sins, and he laid down his life for us on the cross. He gave his last breath so that we could have a breath for eternity, so we could live forever with him. We have a God who searched high and low for us, and we have a God who pursues us no matter what. May we go pursue others at all costs, May we stop at nothing as we love others and bring them back to the loving arms of Jesus. Let's pray. God, is anybody in this room right now who is lost, who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves in this moment that they would receive you into their lives, that they would recognize that they had been squandering your wealth and wild living. Or maybe they've been full of pride and self-righteousness. God, I pray right here and right now that anybody in this room who's lost, God, reach down your hand and grab them. I know you put them on your shoulders right now. You are the good shepherd and there's somebody in this room right now who, who, who wants to receive the love and grace of Jesus for the first time. Just pray this prayer with me. God, it says, pray with me. God, I am sorry. I'm sorry. I'm that lost coin. I'm that lost sheep. I'm that lost son. I confess my sins to you. I want to be found by you, found by your love. God, restore to me a relationship. I want to have a relationship with you. I believe you as my Lord and Savior, and I commit my life to following you. And if you prayed that prayer, there is much rejoicing. <laughs> There's much celebration in heaven right here in this moment because you have prayed that prayer. You have received Jesus, your good shepherd, and your life will never be the same. And if you're in this room right now and you've You've been a Christian, maybe following Christ for a long time. Maybe you fall into the camp of maybe a Pharisee. Maybe you've allowed your own self-righteousness and pride to keep you from an intimate relationship with your Father. Repent of it right now. Confess right now. Say, God, I'm sorry. I confess to you, pride. I confess to you that I've lived my own way. I want to live for you. And I want to commit my life to pursuing the lost at all costs. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Singing over
Yeah.